Biden has signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. At least, he will have done so by the time you hear this. The Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, is a historic piece of climate and healthcare legislation passed by Democrats along party lines. With $369 billion of the spending package dedicated to clean energy and decarbonization programs, the IRA has been aptly called a climate bill. But in many ways, it's about industrial policy, which is defined as government efforts to support particular industries that are considered strategically important. Building and deploying clean energy technology here at home is a major focus of the bill, with the potential for exporting these solutions around the globe. These new investments come amid concerns that the U.S. has been falling behind other nations, most notably China, in the global innovation race. On this episode, we discuss what's at stake and how the U.S. is positioning to lead in the clean energy economy. This is Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and this is the third episode in the Arsenal of Clean Energy series supported by Third Way a center-left think tank championing modern solutions to the most challenging problems in U.S. policy. I'm delighted to be joined by Varun Sivaram, Senior Advisor to U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, and Managing Director for Clean Energy Innovation and Competitiveness. Varun, how are you feeling today on the moment that we're expecting the president to sign into law this massive Inflation Reduction Act piece of legislation with lots in there for U.S. competitiveness? I am so excited, Julia, and thank you for having me on this podcast The president's expected to sign the bill later this afternoon. So by the time you all hear this, this will actually be a law. That's fantastic. And we're going to dig into all the elements of that bill that I think feed into the topic of today's discussion. We'll break it all down. To help us do that, we're also joined by Nick Montoni. Nick is the Senior Innovation Policy Advisor for the Climate and Clean Energy Program at Third Way. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Julia. So Varun, I'd like to start with you in sort of setting the scene around our topic today. I know you've thought a lot about energy innovation. You've written many papers on it. You've written a book about it called Taming the Sun. And you've approached this issue from a lot of different angles over the course of your career. I know you have a PhD in physics. You went on to work in Silicon Valley at a solar startup. You advised cities and states on energy policy. Then you went on to the think tank world. You've also went on to work for the largest renewable energy developer in India, Renew Power. I had the wonderful opportunity to meet you in India and Delhi for a meal. That was great. And now, of course, you're working directly with the federal government. So to set the scene here, I recall you saying a couple years ago that the U.S. government spends between 7 and $9 billion on energy innovation, which is about a fifth to a tenth or perhaps even less of what the country spends on space, health, and defense research. We'll get into how those spending dollars may have changed since that analysis. But Frame this issue for us to begin with. Why is government spending on energy innovation so critical, particularly when we think about the U.S. not only succeeding here at home, but becoming that arsenal of clean energy for the world? Yes, absolutely, Julia. Well, climate tech innovation in the United States has been a clear priority for President Joe Biden since the beginning of the administration. And so that disparity that you mentioned between how much we spend on climate tech innovation and other fields, defense, space, health, et cetera, is a gap that we absolutely have to close in order for the U.S. to reach its clean energy and climate tech potential. Now, the statistics you cited, you know, we talked about them in a book I and some co-authors at Columbia University published right before the administration called Energizing America. The thesis of that book was that the United States should triple its investments in clean energy innovation by 2025. I'm I'm very pleased and proud to say that we are well on our way toward that mark. But there are two key reasons that we cited for why we need to do this. 
The first, of course, is climate change. The International Energy Agency tells us that in order to reach our climate goals, to get to net zero emissions by 2050, 50% of the reductions in emissions we'll need to reach that point will come from technologies that aren't yet ready for market today. That's why innovation is so important. We'll need innovation across technologies like clean fuels that replace oil and gas, long duration energy storage for high penetration renewable systems, zero carbon heavy industry, carbon dioxide removal, from the atmosphere, for example, technologies to reduce emissions from agriculture, to reduce methane emissions, and to operate our complex energy systems and our growing smart grids. All of this is going to require innovation. But it's not just the, the climate challenge. The United States should be investing in clean energy and climate tech innovation because there will be these growing multi-trillion dollar markets for these technologies at home and abroad. You mentioned, Julia, uh, in the introduction that a key reason that the Inflation Reduction Act and other parts of President Biden's legislative agenda, like the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, a key reason these are so important is to boost U.S. competitiveness. We have a chance to capitalize. Undeniably, the early innings of this race were won by other countries. China, for example, has dominated in the production of solar panels, batteries, wind turbines. But now we really have a chance to support U.S. industry in these technologies that we develop at home and can produce at home. And finally, I'll just say that uh, alongside growing government funding for clean energy and climate tech innovation, we also have this exciting trend of growing private sector funding. Last year, 2021, we set a record $40 billion in private climate technology venture capital. And this year, in the first half of the year, as there was a broader pullback in tech investing, that number dropped a little. We went down to just about $19 billion in the first half of 2022. But, but funding is now picking up, and I'm very confident the Inflation Reduction Act is going to turbocharge uh, both public and private investment in this important sector. Indeed, we're already seeing headlines to that effect. And the bill hasn't even officially been signed by the president as we record this. So certainly some of that um, is being built in to future planning. One more scene setting question for you, Varun. I'd like for you to break down if possible the categories of let's call quote unquote energy innovation. What are we talking about here? Is it everything from the university lab to a multi-million dollar project demonstration? Is it building out supply chains? Sort of where do you think of innovation starting and ending? I'm really glad you asked that, Julia, because innovation is not some simple monolithic thing. And, you know, Many folks tend to confuse it with just one single thing, which is early stage research. Innovation spans a lot of things. I like to think of it not as a technology from cradle to grave, but rather a technology from cradle to market. From the invention of that technology through the prototype phase, using this research and development that happens in national laboratories and in universities, uh, and then in small and growing companies, then to the demonstration phase where you take a technology and you put it into the field at a commercial or close to commercial scale for the first time and culminating in what I call early market deployment, the first commercial deployments of this technology on the road to where it can achieve mass market adoption or what we call in the technology space diffusion. So everything before mass market diffusion really counts in this innovation pipeline. And just to go back to your earlier question, Government support is critical across this entire innovation pipeline. Early stage research and development is a well-studied phenomenon where without government spending, the private sector tends to invest insufficiently in early stage research and development. 
you may have heard, for those of you who are uh, seasoned climate listeners, you may have heard that there is an externality that is not recognized in private markets called carbon pricing externality. And that's absolutely true. But there's another important externality called the R&D externality, where private firms underinvest in research and development given the amount of public benefit that such research and development offers. So governments can close that externality. Governments can also provide incentives that reduce what we call the green premium, a term that Bill Gates has developed, to call the cost differential between a clean solution that's emerging and an existing conventional dirty solution. And that green premium falls as clean solutions become more cost effective and scale up and achieve commercialization. And finally, government spending is critical to cross the valley of debt, where companies often need expansion capital in order to scale from their prototype phase to a large-scale demonstration, for example. There are actually many valleys of debt that companies have to traverse. So government funding is critical across all of these different areas. That's why innovation is not monolithic. Now, you mentioned, Julia, um, supply chains, for example. I think in order for innovation to be successful, there are some enablers, Associated infrastructure is important. For example, if you're trying to get uh, carbon dioxide removal or carbon capture built, you may need some associated pipeline infrastructure. If you want to use green ammonia for ships, you'll need some new port infrastructure. These multi-billion dollar large supply chains, I think, tend to fall in the category of technology deployment. But of course, there's innovation in supply chains. You can have innovations to do more battery recycling or more efficiently extract lithium from brine for a battery. And you can have new technologies altogether that reduce your supply chain risk because they're using fewer critical minerals. So there is this nexus between climate tech innovation and supply chains. That's a super helpful breakdown. Thank you for that. I guess I'd add my two cents in that I think there are technologies in the clean energy realm that are ready for deployment. They've been seasoned, they're matured, things like solar and wind, and we're ready to deploy, deploy, deploy. Then there are these other types of solutions that we absolutely need to decarbonize our economies and then grow them over time. And so I think there's sort of a two-track system in some ways. I think some people hear green premium and think, oh, the whole clean energy transition is not ready for prime time. Whereas I think we're getting to a point of sophistication where there are different markets within this broader clean energy umbrella, and there are different stages of development. And now we have to make sure the whole movement keeps moving forward. Would you agree with that, Varun? Oh, absolutely, Julia. Look, the way we look at it is, as Secretary Kerry has said, by 2030, the world needs to slash its emissions by roughly half. Most of that, 80% of that emission reduction is going to come from those technologies you mentioned, Julia, that we're ready to deploy, deploy, deploy. It's our solar and wind, for example, our electric vehicles. But the heavy lifting of the innovative emerging technologies, the ones that aren't yet ready for prime time, that heavy lifting is going to happen in the later decades. And again, by the time you get to 2050, to get to net zero, half of the heavy lifting is done by the emerging technologies and half of it overall is done by the technologies ready to deploy. So it's just front loaded right now what we have to deploy and we shouldn't kid ourselves. We have a lot that we can do right now with the technologies ready to go. So Nick, let's turn to the headline news of the day. What is in the Inflation Reduction Act that you would highlight that invests in American clean energy innovation? Does this bill hit the mark for where we need to see those investments go? I think, above all, the Inflation Reduction Act is a clean energy deployment bill with an estimated $369 billion for clean energy tax credits, financing for innovative clean energy projects, vehicle technologies, and energy asset retrofits, and funding for enabling technologies like low carbon and nuclear fuels. This bill makes a huge investment in building clean energy and clean industry assets. 
A lot like Varun, I like to take a really expansive view of innovation. I think it does run the gamut from basic science, um, the ideation phase, scientists working in their labs to come up with ideas and produce new technologies, all the way up to putting steel in the ground to build our energy infrastructure. I think deployment is innovation because the more clean energy we finance and build, the better we get at financing and building clean energy. The tax credits I mentioned in this bill They're going to last for about 10 years, but they have uh, an emissions threshold. So if we don't hit 75% emissions reductions, the tax credits get extended. This means that emerging technologies that maybe aren't ready for prime time right now still have a chance to take advantage of these tax credits over the next 10 years and possibly even longer as the tax credits phase out. So in reality, this bill might not be marketed as an innovation bill and might not have really specific innovation provisions. We might not be looking at R&D. We might not be looking at large-scale demonstrations. But this bill provides funding and creates markets for innovative technologies to take advantage of. So I mentioned at the outset of the show that the Inflation Reduction Act is often referred to as a climate bill. You'll see that all over headlines. But in many ways, I do think it's more of an American competitiveness bill or an industrial policy bill, which is maybe even more specific. Varun, would you agree with that characterization of it as a competitiveness bill? And what's your reaction to what that means for the U.S. when we think about positioning its leadership on these issues globally? So to to be clear, Julia, I think it's both. I think it's a climate bill with a really important innovation component. And I also think it's obviously an American competitiveness bill. Let me talk about both in turn. On the climate component, by far the biggest reason that this has important implications for innovation is that it complements the rest of our innovation support ecosystem from the government. You'll recall that President Biden signed into law the bipartisan infrastructure law last year. And that law has $80 billion for the energy transition, including, for example, $9 billion for demonstrating hydrogen hubs, $11 billion for demonstrating carbon capture and industrial infrastructure. That funding is now paired with the funding in the Inflation Reduction Act that creates early markets for these technologies. So if the bipartisan infrastructure law had $9 billion for hydrogen hubs, the Inflation Reduction Act now has a tax credit for clean hydrogen. If the bipartisan infrastructure law had demonstration funds for carbon capture, the Inflation Reduction Act now has generous incentives called 45Q for carbon capture, as well as for carbon dioxide removal technologies. So what we've finally done for the first time in American energy history is paired our innovation investments on the front end, research and development and demonstration, with early market adoption incentives on the back end through the Inflation Reduction Act, through these tax credits. Historically, the United States would do this model called innovate here, produce there. We, for example, invented the silicon solar cell back in 1954, but today China produces most of the world's solar photovoltaic silicon panels. Now we have a chance finally to innovate here and also produce our own clean energy technologies here. Now, why is this all important for climate? We talk about the Inflation Reduction Act as a climate bill. It absolutely is. But think about it this way. The direct effect is, of course, to reduce American emissions. It could reduce American emissions by about a gigaton by 2030 compared to the scenario where we didn't have the Inflation Reduction Act, according to Jesse Jenkins at Princeton. That gigaton is enormous. It's maybe the the largest impact of any single climate policy in the whole world. But at the end of the day, it amounts to on the order of 2% of global emissions avoided in 2030. 
2% is, again, a large number for one policy, but not a large number compared to the 100% we have to abate around the world. The much larger impact of the Inflation Reduction Act may very well be the effect of reducing technology costs through American innovation for the rest of the world. If the rest of the world then is able to adopt clean hydrogen and carbon capture and advanced nuclear reactors, etc., and deploy them at scale, the multiple of the effect of the direct American emission reduction may be felt around the world. I've often talked about how solving climate change from an American perspective has a 5% problem and a 95% problem. The 5% problem is American emissions between now and 2100. That's how much we represent of the future emissions pie because we have declining emissions in the U.S., Whereas other countries, whether it's India, for example, or emerging economies, have rising emissions. So 95% of the climate challenge is actually outside of our own borders for the rest of the century. So unless we tackle the 95% problem, we're not really attacking climate change. And the Inflation Reduction Act attacks the 95% problem by reducing technology costs so that the rest of the world can reduce their emissions. That obviously ties closely to your question, Julia, which is, why is this so important for competitiveness? Why is this an American competitiveness bill? Well, now we have a chance for American technologies to reduce India's or Indonesia's or South Africa's emissions, not just Chinese technologies. We have a chance for American technologies, frankly, to meet America's own needs. Historically, we've imported a fair amount of our clean energy, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But now we're giving our own industries a fighting chance by playing to our own strengths. America's strengths, of course, are our innovation strengths, our innovation ecosystem. And by pairing support for innovation with early market incentives to adopt these technologies, we create a virtuous cycle where the United States can finally win in its own markets at home and win in markets abroad. Well, I feel like there's so much we could continue to unpack in that, but we'll continue on with the Inflation Reduction Act for now. You mentioned this being somewhat of an innovation bill, and I think when you start to unpack it, there is a lot in there, as you alluded to. So starting at the lab level, I know the IRA includes nearly $1.6 billion in funding over the next five years for national laboratories. That's to help them invest in infrastructure, facilities, and equipment, as well as energy science projects. There's also $450 million split evenly between the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management, the Office of Nuclear Energy, and the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. These are all at the Department of Energy. And those will help them deploy infrastructure projects and general plant projects. And so there's innovation sort of baked into some of that spending there. Nick, the IRA also creates a new $5.8 billion program under the Office of Clean Energy Demonstration to invest in projects aimed at reducing emissions from energy-intensive industries, those hard-to-decarbonize sectors. So the Office of Clean Energy Demonstration, or OCED, is a new office. It was created actually recently under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. You've actually written about this office and the significance of it. So walk us through what the OCED is and the implications of this new funding in the IRA for that office. Happy to, Julia. OCED is actually a favorite of mine. So like we've talked about a little bit already today, when we talk about technology development, we often bring up a phenomenon called the Valley of Death. A valley of death, in this context, refers to parts of the innovation process that aren't well supported financially. So nascent higher risk technologies fall in, can't get back out, never make it to widespread commercialization. There are multiple valleys of death. There are technological valleys of death where it's difficult to develop the technology and it doesn't make it to a prototype or pilot phase. And then there is the demonstration gap, the demonstration valley of death, where a prototype or pilot phase technology can't be validated at commercial scale. 
So OCED aims to fill this demonstration gap. The office looks to prove that these prototype pilot scale technologies are ready for prime time, are ready for commercial deployment, and are ready for market penetration. Now, private investors are generally very risk averse. It sounds like that's changing, but generally they're very risk averse. And so they prefer to put their money into technologies that have already been proven, which leads to a bit of a catch-22, right? You need the money to prove the technology, but no one wants to invest the money to prove the technology because it's high risk. So OCED is there to provide funding to make it easier for private investors to invest in technology demonstrations and to make it easier for technology demonstrations to make it over this demonstration gap. So I want to give an example, not from OCED, but an example of how public funding can help technology cross the demonstration gap. One thing to consider is the icebreaker wind demonstration in Lake Erie. Obviously, it has faced some regulatory barriers. I think just a week ago, the Ohio Supreme Court cleared one of their permits, so they're able to move forward with the project. All of the regulatory issues aside, I think it's fair to say that this demonstration wouldn't be moving forward without a $40 million investment from the Department of Energy. And this demonstration is there to prove that an innovative turbine technology actually works for a wind farm. So the lack of public funding to demonstrate innovative technologies on a large scale has slowed their progress. Dr. Nemet of the University of Wisconsin did a wide-ranging study of demonstration projects across eight sectors and found that public funding is the only way to get the major innovations across the demonstration gap. So OCD exists to provide this funding for these kinds of innovative technologies, especially capital-intensive and market-scale demonstrations in an effort to attract private financing and prove that emerging clean energy technologies can reduce emissions and work at the community and grid scale. So that was OCED. Let's talk about this new $5.8 billion program that's going to be living at OCED thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. This new funding is extremely important to our efforts to reduce carbon emissions from heavy and energy-intensive industries. So think like steel production, cement production, chemical production. I think the thing to remember is that regardless of how much clean energy we want to build and generate, we'll also need to keep building things. And building things takes energy, it takes steel, it takes cement, it takes heat. That means we're going to be keeping our energy-intensive industries very busy for the next three decades and longer. This new program at OCED provides funding for heavy industries to conduct engineering studies on new technologies, to retrofit their facilities, for instance, with point source carbon capture, or to deploy new technologies to aid in their work. For instance, a small modular nuclear reactor to provide electricity and process heat. But the real goal of this program is, like any demonstration program, the learning. The more we deploy these innovative industrial technologies, the better we'll get at deploying innovative industrial technologies. I know there's a lot more we can say about demonstration projects and the concept and the need for them, but Varun, I'd like to go to you for a double click on the energy intensive industries and the need to decarbonize those sectors specifically and sort of pan out here for a moment. I know your office launched recently the First Movers Coalition. That was just last fall at COP26 in Glasgow. And the effort was designed to unite global players to help scale technologies in these hard-to-abate sectors. So take a moment to walk us through the ambition of the First Movers Coalition and where it stands today. On the First Movers Coalition, as Nick mentioned, there are these sectors that we call hard-to-abate sectors. 
they include heavy duty industry, steel, cement, et cetera, long distance transport, shipping, aviation, long distance trucking. And what we realized was there is a real need for innovative technologies because there are no cost competitive alternatives to conventional fossil fuels, unabated fossil fuels today in these sectors. And so the criticality of innovation is even higher in the hard to abate sectors compared with, for example, the power sector, where we have technologies that are ready to deploy today, as you said, Julia. Given this need, President Biden and Secretary John Kerry launched late last year at COP26 an initiative called the First Movers Coalition. The idea behind the First Movers Coalition was to sort of copy the success we've had in other fields by creating early markets for innovative technologies. In vaccines, for example, the federal government created an advanced market commitment. And as a result of that advanced market commitment, uh, we had successful COVID vaccines come to market. In spaceflight, uh, NASA created an advanced commitment to pay for commercially crewed spaceflight. And SpaceX became the first private company to send a commercially crewed private rocket to the International Space Station. In clean energy, The First Movers Coalition brings together the world's biggest companies to make a similar sort of advanced market commitment, a strong demand signal. Ford Motor Company, for example, has committed to buy 10% of its steel by 2030 from near zero carbon steel sources. Those sources largely don't exist around the world. There's one plant in Sweden that can produce near zero carbon steel, but we'll we'll need many dozens more plants in this decade to start to reach our climate goals. Similarly, United Airlines and Delta Airlines and and even Apple and Salesforce have all committed to reduce their demand for conventional jet fuel, which is highly polluting, by 5% by the end of the decade and replace it with technologies that will reduce the emissions of conventional jet fuel by 85% or more. For example, using synthetic fuels uh, that you can produce using green hydrogen and captured carbon dioxide in order to replace your jet fuel. So the First Movers Coalition today, as of 2022, when Secretary Kerry relaunched it at Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum, the First Movers Coalition counts 55 of the world's biggest companies. These companies represent more than 10% of the global Fortune 2000 by market cap. We have nine government partners and our our co-chair, along with the U.S. government, is the World Economic Forum. And the purchasing commitments made by the companies amount to $10 billion across shipping, steel, aviation, trucking, carbon dioxide removal technologies, and other sectors. So we're excited to go to the COP later this year and launch a new set of commitments. And I'm particularly excited that the commitments that we've launched through the First Movers Coalition, like what it means to be near zero carbon steel, have been adopted in other important forums. The G7 adopted and the International Energy Agency adopted the standard for near zero carbon steel so we can scale up that technology uh, in public policies around the world. So, Nick, the Inflation Reduction Act includes new funds for the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office. First, walk us through what this office does and how has it used funds in the past? People may remember Solyndra. Dun, dun, dun. Of course, it's being headed up now by Jigger Shah, who many people know and love in the clean energy space. So walk us through the LPO and, and what it does today. The Loan Programs Office does exactly what its title says it does. It manages Department of Energy loan programs. So now that the Inflation Reduction Act has become law, the Loan Programs Office is going to have four loan programs to manage, one for innovative energy technologies, one for advanced low and zero emissions vehicle technologies, one for tribal energy development, and now, as of passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, one for reinvesting in or retrofitting closed energy infrastructure. 
Over its history, this office's programs have supported over 30 clean energy projects or vehicle technology projects, helped create or maintain livelihoods for 37,000 clean energy workers, and helped to avoid 60 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. In fact, in the past year, the office has made two new financing commitments, a $500 million loan guarantee for hydrogen production and storage in Delta, Utah, and a $100 million loan for the production of electric vehicle battery components in Vidalia, Louisiana. You mentioned new funds for the office in the Inflation Reduction Act. I would be remiss not to actually throw out some numbers here. So I mentioned four different programs. For the Innovative Energy Program, they're getting $3.6 billion to operate their program and give out loan guarantees. And they're also getting an extra $40 billion in loan guarantee authority. So I want to be very clear, these are two different buckets of money. The $3.6 billion I mentioned, that's money that's actually going to come out of the U.S. Treasury and go to this program for them to give out loans and operate. The $40 billion in loan authority, that's how much money is available to them to lend or guarantee. So that's not money that they have in the bank. That's the, the cap of the amount that they're able to guarantee. So now that I've given that little explanation, I'll move on to the rest of the funding buckets. For this Advanced Vehicle Technologies Program in the Inflation Reduction Act, they're getting $3 billion to continue their operations, and their loan authority cap is getting completely lifted. So there's now actually no cap to how much lending they can do. It's only limited by how much money they have in the bank to actually pay for the cost of those loans. Now, this funding for the Advanced Vehicles Program is really important because in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which was signed into law in November, this program actually got new authorities to lend to advanced vehicle manufacturers who are designing low and zero emissions heavy-duty vehicles. So that includes things like freight, trains, ferries, airplanes. Previously, this program had only ever lended to light-duty vehicle manufacturing. So with this new authority, the office needed new funding. And so this $3 billion can be used for them to direct loans to these medium and heavy-duty vehicles. Next on the list is the Tribal Energy Development Program I mentioned. They are getting $75 million for their operations, and their loan authority cap is being raised to $20 billion. That's really great news. Also, this program used to be a loan guarantee program. Loan guarantees are not as useful as direct loans. So there is a provision in this law that allows this program to make direct loans to tribes, which will help them to continue their energy development efforts. And finally, the new one for retrofitting and reopening closed energy infrastructure. They're getting $5 billion in funding to operate the program, and they have available loan authority of $250 billion. This is the number people keep throwing around as, you know, a really whopping sum, and it is, but it meets the scale of the need, because if you think about it, you know, around the country, there's roughly $160 billion in closed or closing energy assets that ratepayers are still on the hook for. So this $250 billion can actually go towards reinvesting in a lot of those closed assets. 
So Nick did just an excellent breakdown of the LPO's activity, but I have to note that in recent years, it has slowed down. It's been tough to get some of those dollars out the door. Uh, most, if not all of our listeners will remember Solyndra, a, a solar technology company that did not succeed and became a political punching bag uh, with Republicans blaming Democrats for making bad bets on clean technologies. So Rune, I'm wondering, what do you think we can learn from the past and the way the government has invested, either specifically through the LPO or maybe lessons learned from that more broadly? Broadly. Is there a better way for the government to make these investments? Or sort of flipping the script, is the answer just that we need to deal with the fact that energy innovation comes with risk and we need to accept that there are failures along the way? And that's just part of the process. Julia, this is such a charged topic. It's like really triggering. Um, <laughs> let me first say, uh, to characterize the LPO as anything but quite a success in the Obama years is a mischaracterization. Um, set aside Solyndra for a second. I'll come back to that. Um, LPO supported the first five utility-scale solar installations of more than 100 megawatts in the Obama years. And that set off the United States and arguably the global solar market. LPO supported Tesla. We all know where that led to. With respect to Solyndra, by the way, I actually think now the United States policy landscape, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, is much more friendly to uh, investments in solar manufacturing. Again, Julia, you suggested that this was an American competitiveness bill. And I said, well, we want to not only innovate here, we want to produce here. We've got $60 billion of manufacturing incentives thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. And much of that will support U.S. solar manufacturing. Now, yes, your point, Julia, is absolutely right. Investing in emerging technologies is inherently risky. Frankly, some of them probably should fail if what you're trying to do is construct a portfolio that takes the right level of aggressive bets. I talked to Jigger yesterday. We had a good long call. Um, I am such a fan of what he's done. And Jigger is a close partner on the First Movers Coalition that President Biden launched. Because what Jigger is going to invest in through the Loan Programs Office are the facilities that the corporate members of the First Movers Coalition have committed to buy. Uh, clean steel, for example, clean sustainable aviation fuels. Now, what Jigger's done recently, I think, is doing things exactly in the right order. He spent 16 months setting up the infrastructure within LPO, hiring the right talent, making sure that the processes are right so that the private sector once again trusts the loan programs office and is sending in applications in droves. I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to scoop any news, but I think we will see a much faster cadence of LPO lending for a range of projects now that their pipeline has filled up and Jigger has a wonderful system of diligencing deals. So very excited for what is to come at LPO. And I think the absolute wrong lesson is to say, well, we had a failure in the Obama years under LPO, therefore LPO shouldn't exist. By contrast, failures are probably one of the hallmarks of taking an aggressive, correctly risk-based portfolio approach. And we should be doing that. And of course, managing the political risks. Yes, right. The political risks. I hope that as a nation, we can come to uh, latch on to what you just said, because I think it is so key for innovation more broadly. We have to accept that there are bumps in the road and keep those investments consistent, keep our programs consistent so that the country can ultimately lead and not get you know bogged down with political debates. This actually reminds me of when I went to China with New Energy Nexus, a startup clean energy program. And, and someone who worked in a Chinese clean energy incubator said, 
America has a lone wolf strategy. You have to be one star who makes it through and travels through the muck and picks yourself up by the bootstraps. And then you can make it through perhaps with the right, you know, star studded investors behind you. Whereas China has a wolf pack mentality where there's investments across the landscape. There are multiple teams who are invested in. Not every single one of them succeeds, but as a pack, they thrive and move forward together. And that image really stuck with me. And I hope that what we'll see now through LPO and the wider range of uh, projects that are you know, applying for those loans, we'll have maybe a little bit more of that wolf pack mentality where we succeed together as a group and ultimately win the day versus just having one-off success stories. So Nick, I have to bring in another recent topic that's been in the news and want your thoughts on it. We're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. It's been dominating the news cycle. But Congress also recently passed on a bipartisan basis, and the president already signed into law what's called the Chips and Science Act. The bill seeks to boost American competitiveness in the global technology innovation race. Specifically, CHIPS is a five-year, $280 billion bill designed to keep the U.S. ahead of China in a global technology race. But I mentioned those numbers. Not all of those dollars are authorized, and they've not been officially committed. So what's going on here? What is CHIPS, and how much funding is actually included in that bill to advance U.S. technology development? This is a great question, Julia, and you are getting me on my soapbox, so I hope everyone is prepared. Um, you're, you're exactly right to point out the difference between funding that has been authorized and funding that has been committed. So the CHIPS and Science Act is actually a package. It's a suite of bills and a suite of provisions. The only thing in there that is funded is the CHIPS for America Fund, which allows the government to spend $52 billion dollars or rather, it spends $52 billion on semiconductor R&D and manufacturing. The rest of the provisions in this bill, and that includes a lot of things, uh, supply chain research and development at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, funding for the national labs and the Department of Energy, funding for the National Science Foundation, all of those things, none of those have actually been funded. No money has been approved to be transferred from the U.S. Treasury to the rest of the government to do its work. Now, that sounds kind of weird, right? You asked, why pass a bill written like this? Generally speaking, Congress does this all the time. The Energy Act of 2020, which people might remember, which was passed as part of a really big package of bills at the end of 2020, contained no funding. It had no money in it. Each year's National Defense Authorization Act which we pass every year to reauthorize the Department of Defense and certain military operations, those don't contain any funding. There's no money in those bills. So among its legislative roles, Congress can do two specific things, among other things, can authorize programs and activities, i.e. tell the federal government what to do, and it can appropriate funds for activities. In other words, transfer money from the Treasury to the rest of the government to carry out those activities. As an aside, some legal scholarship and some precedent tell us that Congress actually doesn't need to authorize activities in order to spend money on activities, which is why, in my very humble opinion, the appropriations committees are the most powerful in Congress. But having authority in the law helps. So whether or not funding flows for all of these Chips and Science Act provisions that we like for clean energy innovation is going to be up to Congress and it's going to be up to the appropriations committees. So each year, Congress has to pass legislation that funds the entirety of the federal government. In the event that they fail to do so, the government will either shut down or Congress will pass some sort of stopgap measure that extends previous year funding levels. So the most likely scenario here is that 
it's going to be via these funding bills that we see money start to flow for chips and science provisions. And I think specifically, we'll likely see this funding start to flow when Congress works on fiscal year 2024 funding bills. And just again, a little bit of editorializing, I think this was a largely bipartisan bill. And so I think the funding should flow relatively easily, right? We've seen that Democrats and Republicans can agree that these provisions should exist, which means I think they'll be able to agree that they should be funded too. So you're saying the Inflation Reduction Act didn't just fix all of our spending problems. We got to watch Congress some more for these appropriations decisions. We have to spend money every year. (laughs) And so (laughs) if we want to see what I'm telling everybody is that if we want to see Chips and Science Act provisions funded, we are going to have to advocate for that funding. So Varun, I'd like to take a lens of looking both abroad and internally here and kind of package a few thoughts together. We talked about investments in innovation broadly. We talked about global competitiveness. How do you see American technologies getting exported to countries like India, Romania, partners of ours? How how does that look? And will it benefit American workers and American consumers, perhaps more specifically? Will we see benefits of that on a broad scale? Or is this just going to be wins for some private companies that hit the technology uh, jackpot, if you will? So how how does that look, both serving partners abroad and, and impacting people here at home? Well, first, let me just uh, give a shout out to Nick and to Third Way. They've worked very closely with my office, with Secretary Kerry's office, with the U.S. government on running analyses of where the United States could be globally competitive in the next generation of clean technologies. And again, I I don't want to spoil any news. And so I'll, I'll keep my conclusions very high level. But at a high level, today, the United States exports on the order of a quarter of a trillion dollars in conventional energy products, whether it's oil and gas or internal combustion engine vehicles. And if we're going to net zero by 2050, we're not only going to want to reduce our emissions, we're going to want to replace our exports from dirty energy with exports from clean energy. And the United States has a pathway to do that. In fact, we can export more than a quarter trillion dollars through products such as clean hydrogen, the next generation of electric vehicles, clean steel, and other products. So first, I just want to congratulate uh, Nick and Thirdway on the excellent analysis here. And let me talk about your specific question, Julia, which is, it's so critical that we find a way for American technologies to meet the decarbonization needs of, you cited two countries, you said Romania and India. In both cases, I think we have excellent ways of doing this. With Romania, last year we signed an MOU to supply small modular reactors. Um, And as you know, in the United States, we just had the first uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission license for an American technology for a small modular reactor. In, uh, in India, and I was recently, I've traveled to India several times with the secretary and I lead our US-India climate dialogue. Recently, I was at a round table in India with American companies looking to break into the Indian market. And these are you know, wonderful examples of American technologies developed here. I'll take Lanzatech, for example, which is developing technologies to produce clean fuel, such as clean jet fuel. There's a company that is looking to break into the Indian market. And if it succeeds, it may be a win-win for both India and the United States. It'll help India reach its decarbonization goals. It'll help India set up manufacturing and it will help America because it'll be our technology company that licenses a technology that's used in India and repatriates revenue and profit back to the United States. You asked a question, Julie, about how broadly these dividends are shared. 
Does it just go to the, the wealthy few? Actually, uh, research that uh, Breakthrough Energy sponsored uh, a couple of years ago demonstrates that the dividends for communities is actually highest from research and development expenditures. When American technology companies thrive abroad, the communities at home in the United States where there are research and development jobs, but also a whole community of associated economic drivers, that entire community benefits American technology leadership, therefore, benefits not only the American technology companies, but the communities in which American technology companies draw their employment base and also support the local ecosystem. And finally, I'll say where America can manufacture products and export them. That's another way of revitalizing a historic source of U.S. economic strength. So we've got to seize this global clean tech export opportunity. It's a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. Historically, we've done a terrible job at it. Under President Biden, I think we finally have a fighting chance. So you talked about the potential there, but there are still challenges. There's the real work of getting this done. And just earlier this month, it was reported that a vanadium flow battery company with technology developed at a U.S. national lab with more than $15 million in taxpayer funding ended up moving to China to manufacture their product. Apparently, the company Uni Energy Technologies received a license from the Department of Energy to manufacture and sell the batteries uh, here in the U.S., but they couldn't persuade any U.S. investors to come on board. So, Nick, I'd like to go to you for this. I don't expect you to weigh in on this particular case, but I would be interested to know if you think it says something about the breakdowns that can happen in getting innovation from you know the lab through to deployment, as uh, Varun laid out at the beginning of the episode. Where do you think some of those breakdowns happen? I'm really glad that you asked this question because I think it not only dovetails off of a lot of the conversation we've already been having uh, this morning, but it gets to an interesting conversation about the interlocking of innovation policy and competitiveness. The root of the problem is this, uh, and it's that why are U.S. investors afraid or reluctant to support emerging technologies and why are foreign investors and governments so much quicker in their support? I think part of the answer is a long history of risk aversion and austerity in our own public investment and financing of innovative technologies. So as of 2020, two years ago, and prior to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act or the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S. ranked 12th in energy RD&D investment as a percentage of GDP behind much of Europe, China, and Japan. 12th, not even in the top 10. So... Not coincidentally, these countries I listed who are beating us in energy RD&D are also beating us in developing new technologies, including technologies for energy storage, hydrogen production, solar energy production. So there's a very clear trend here. The countries who are spending more money on their innovation continuum are also doing a better job of innovating. Just to get a little pointed here, Measures like the Budget Control Act of 2011 and caps on our discretionary spending, which is the kind of spending that goes to RD&D, have set us back on the world stage and actually weakened our innovation continuum. We, as a country, need to be rethinking innovation investments, risk management, and failure. I think Varun mentioned quite a bit of this earlier when we were talking about the loan program's office and its work to support innovations and properly manage risk, I think we should all think like scientists here. Every failed experiment is actually just a learning opportunity, right? When I was doing my PhD, every time an experiment went wrong, I learned that my hypothesis method or analysis was wrong. And that means 
I could also learn a new way to try to do it right. Similarly, when we fund and finance risky energy technologies, we should be thinking about how useful it is to our innovation continuum to remove bad ideas and bad technologies from the market while validating and de-risking the effective ones. A failure isn't necessarily a failure. I don't even know that we should call it a failure. It's good proof that a technology or business plan isn't viable. This is one role of government and public investment. The public should take on the risks that the private sector is afraid to take on. And it's something that we need to do as well as or better than our competitors. Otherwise, they will continue to beat us in developing new technologies. And that means we have to spend money. Thank you for tackling that one, Nick. Interesting insights. I love that uh, comparison to your PhD and the trial and error that comes with that. Now, I'd be remiss, Varun, to let you go without one more global question. I know you wear that hat working with Special Envoy Kerry. So we're talking amid Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine, which I think has started to shift some thinking around U.S. investments in energy innovation, or at least in, in how we deploy solutions to serve our allies. That is actually the whole point of this podcast series, The Arsenal of Clean Energy. And so we've seen allies in Europe start to move away from Russian oil and gas, but they are looking at a severe energy crunch this winter. So what does that signal to you, Varun, with your global hat on? Should the U.S. have built up its arsenal of clean energy much sooner? Would that have made any difference if we had, say, a a bunch of heat pumps ready to go to electrify, you know, heating systems in Europe? Or does it really show we're just not that far along in the energy transition broadly? We would have needed U.S. oil and gas to send to our allies abroad regardless. And there was no real way of avoiding that in this particular crisis scenario. I know I'm throwing a lot at you there, but I'm wondering how you couple the investments in energy innovation with some of these acute needs to serve our partners' needs uh, abroad in Europe, particularly at this moment. There is no more obvious sign that we need a rapid energy transition than some of the energy security difficulties that our European allies are facing. Let me first say President Biden and the United States stand firmly with our allies in Europe. Um, We have a variety of US-EU mechanisms to support them, and we've publicly announced our support for our allies during this difficult energy crisis. But at the end of the day, this is an obvious proof point. The faster we move off of fossil fuels entirely, the faster we will bolster energy security, at least in the conventional sense. You know, we didn't get into on this podcast some of the energy security challenges that will arise when we're dependent on new critical mineral supply chains, for example, and many of those will need to be de-risked. But in the world we live in right now, it's abundantly clear that energy innovation will be essential to achieving energy security objectives. In Europe, for example, reducing natural gas demand from Russia will require reducing demand across the power, heating, and industry sectors. In industry, we already talked about it. There are no commercially competitive alternatives to natural gas, although with today's elevated natural gas, green hydrogen is looking pretty good. And so we need to bring emerging technologies to commercial scale for a Europe or other countries to replace their industrial demand for fossil fuels with either electricity, the primary way of decarbonizing every sector, uh, or clean fuels such as hydrogen. Uh, and heating, you mentioned heat pumps and power. You know, it's it's essential that we use many of the available technologies we already have, renewables, nuclear, storage, transmission, uh, to reduce demand for fossil fuels such as gas. We know we can get to a very high penetration renewable energy powered grid. Uh, we know nuclear can play a critical role both in the United States and in Europe. And it's delightful that some European countries are considering keeping their nuclear plants open and running. So, Across a range of these topics, we know that clean energy is kind of the obvious answer to 
bolstering energy security. It would have, of course, been great if we had gotten started 10 years ago. But now with the important investments in the Inflation Reduction Act, I'm confident the United States will transition to clean energy. I'm confident through Repower EU that the European Union uh, will make this transition toward clean energy. And I think we'll have a safer world as a result if we can make sure that we take care of some of the geopolitical implications of new clean energy supply chains. Well, it is interesting to see this play out a little bit politically because I think others would say the U.S. should have been investing much more in LNG export terminals 10 years ago as well. And look at where we are today, um, demonstrating that that should have been done earlier and we're, we're facing challenges because of it. So well, sure. I don't think this debate is over at all. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, Julia, um, going forward, a couple of things. First, in the very near term, it's infeasible to rapidly scale up U.S. LNG export capacity. Uh, there are projects in the pipeline. Um, we, we have good visibility into, into where our export capacity will go for the next few years. And beyond that, um, it will be clean energy that has an opportunity to really displace fossil fuels. And I'll make the point that Secretary Kerry has made many times. A large-scale build-out of fossil fuel infrastructure is simply incompatible with our climate goals, given the long lifetimes of fossil fuel infrastructure. So the arsenal of clean energy that you have, have been talking about, Julia, refers to truly clean sources of energy, zero carbon sources of energy. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more on the climate imperative. Absolutely. Okay, Nick, to close us out here, we know one thing's for sure. We need consistency. These sort of red light, green light approaches to investing in innovation do not really work because these are by nature risky and long-term projects. So how do you think the U.S. can keep up and keep the dollars flowing? Obviously, we have this great news of the Inflation Reduction Act passing and being signed into law. You talked about the appropriations process, and there's still more to come on actually getting dollars out the door to things like the CHIPS Act. So how do you think we can build in some consistency here, especially when you take in the fact that we are living in a political environment, there's an election coming up later this year, and Republicans may take control of the House and or the Senate? What do you think gets us through as a nation to make this a more core part of what we do and eliminate some of the political volatility? You're exactly right. The innovation landscape is always changing. That's the nature of coming up with new ideas. They have to go somewhere. That's, I think, one benefit of rethinking and passing our annual federal spending legislation each year it means that Congress and the rest of the government have an opportunity to be responsive to the needs of innovators and the needs of markets as technologies develop and mature. So just generally speaking, we, we've already started to do a good job of responding to these technology development needs. The CHIPS and Science Act, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act all respond to and target emerging technologies in specific ways. The Chips and Science Act, like we mentioned, creates a lot of new programs and activities for scientists to receive federal funding for their research and allows a lot more coordination between scientists researching different topics across the federal government. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act has put a ton of funding into large-scale demonstrations and later stages of R&D for emerging technologies. And like we've talked about, the Inflation Reduction Act provides a lot of incentives for businesses and other developers to actually start building innovative clean tech. Beyond just funding, which is obviously important, we need to be thinking about the kinds of programs that enable risk-taking and allow scientists, innovators, and businesses to keep developing their ideas. 
it's been shown that grant programs for research that provide more funding and are longer in duration actually support higher risk research. It's been shown that open topics and open solicitations that allow scientists and innovators to present their ideas rather than trying to fit their ideas into some narrow category, send out more money and bring in more innovative and high-risk ideas. And it's also been shown that technology-neutral programs that allow innovators to demonstrate all kinds of technologies produce more high-impact innovations. So all of this is to say we need to be thinking about our D&D programs that allow a little more flexibility and can respond to the changing needs of innovators and markets rather than trying to pigeonhole our investments into specific technology categories. As for the political question, it's hard to say. It's hard to read the tea leaves. I will point out that provisions in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Chips and Science Act were bipartisan. So my best guess is that Democrats and Republicans are going to find a way to agree on funding for those and keep them funded throughout the annual appropriations process. And while the Inflation Reduction Act programs uh, are partisan and therefore might be a target if Republicans take over one or both chambers of Congress, clawing back funds is always difficult. Not only would that be subject to an internal political fight, but because once the bill is signed into law, the money can actually start flowing and it will start benefiting businesses and communities who are stakeholders of both members of of Congress from both parties, it will be hard to pull that funding back because very few politicians can justify taking incentives away from their constituents. But of course, there's a bigger picture here that we've been talking about, which is competitiveness Democrats and Republicans can certainly agree on at least a few things, one of which is that the United States ought to be a global leader in technology development and innovation, including for clean energy. And like we've said multiple times today and in the past, the best way to do that is by funding the programs that work and designing new RD&D programs that allow innovators to uh, do their best work. So we need to be leading by example and putting our money where our mouth is and, you know, letting the rubber hit the road. Well, that's a good forward-looking note to end on. I've kept you both here longer than anticipated, and I could ask you a million more questions because there's a lot to unpack, and you're such great experts in this space. But I know you have day jobs you have to get back to. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Varun, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Julia. Great to do this, Nick. Thank you so much, Julianne Varun. It's, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much to our editor, Kyle McDonald. Thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks again to Nick and Varun. Be sure to hit subscribe wherever you like to listen. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher. Find us there and follow along. This is the third episode in our arsenal of clean energy podcast series supported by Third Way. We'll be back again very soon. <laughs>